We read about the martyrs for Christ in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Welcome to Souls Under the Altar a program that reviews the stories of God's persecuted from the past and the present. Your host for this program is Etienne McClintock. Stephen, the foremost of the seven deacons, was a man of great devotion and great faith. He was a Jew by birth, spoke Greek, and was familiar with the Greek customs and their manners. Because of these linguistic abilities, he was able to preach the gospel to the Hellenists who were Greek-speaking Jews. Stephen was very zealous and active in the cause of Christ and boldly preached his name and proclaimed his unshakable faith. He was a powerful teacher of the gospel. Stephen, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, was able to do great wonders and signs among the people. We read that it did not take long for opposition to rise against Stephen and the gospel of Christ. We read this in Acts chapter 6, verse 9 to 15. And reading from verse 9, it says, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen. So these were Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Highly educated rabbis and doctors of the law engaged Stephen in a public discussion. They were very confident that they had the truth and could refute any attack on their position. They were convinced that they were right and that they had the right theology and were expecting an easy victory over Stephen. After all, were they not the chosen people of God? How could they possibly be wrong? But as the debate developed, these learned men came to realize that they were unable to refute the wisdom and the biblical accuracy of Stephen's message. We read in Acts chapter 6 and verse 10 that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Not only did he speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, but it was plain that he was a student of the prophecies and well educated in all matters Jewish and in biblical law. Saul of Tarsus was present and took a leading part against Stephen. He brought the weight of eloquence and the logic of the rabbis to bear upon the case. Saul did his best to convince the people that Stephen was preaching delusive and dangerous doctrines. But Stephen, being well versed in the scriptures, had a far greater understanding of the purpose of God in spreading of the gospel even to other nations. Stephen was more than able to defend the truths that he advocated and through the process of their discussion, he utterly defeated his opponents. Jesus had made a promise to his disciples a few years earlier and to Stephen this promise was fulfilled. And we read this promise in Luke chapter 21 verse 14 and 15. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to refute you.
As the priests and rulers saw the power that attended the preaching of Stephen, they were filled with bitter hatred. When God moves on the hearts of men and they resist the Holy Spirit, they will rise up to oppose the gospel and its messengers. They were under deep conviction. But instead of surrendering to the power of the Holy Spirit and the evidence that Stephen presented out of the Holy Bible, out of the Old Testament, they resisted the Holy Spirit and decided to silence God's messenger by putting him to death. If they could satisfy their hatred by silencing Stephen, his death would also act as a deterrent. Fear has always been an effective tool to stop people from receiving the gospel or to practice their beliefs openly. Now, although the Jews did not have the authority to execute anyone, they had on previous occasions taken the law into their own hands and had tried, condemned and executed prisoners by stoning. During those instances, they had actually bribed the Roman authorities to simply look the other way. They had developed such a hatred for Stephen and the doctrine of Jesus Christ that they wanted to act swiftly, even risking the consequences of getting into trouble with the Romans. They arrested Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin council for trial. These people were unable to resist the truth of the gospel presented in the power of the Holy Spirit. But what do people typically do when they cannot defend their theological position or resist its power? They attack the person and try to ruin their credibility or to undermine the person's message and influence. Ad hominem attacks were masterminded by Lucifer, and he was the first to use these against Jesus or against Christ in heaven. So these so-called pious religious leaders hired false witnesses to listen, to testify against Stephen, false witnesses to testify against Stephen, saying that they had heard him speak blasphemous words against the temple and the law. We read this in Acts chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him, that is Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. How willing are fallen human beings to hear a word against someone and accept it as truth without knowing both sides of the story? Well, unfortunately, it happens far too often. Proverbs 18 and verse 17 tells us that the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. The Bible said that they used inducements to get people to tell lies about Stephen and his doctrine. Now in verse 13, it elaborates to this approach further. It says, Then they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And reading now from Acts chapter 6 and verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Obviously, they're referring there to the sermon that Jesus had on the mount with his disciples when he spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem and what would happen in 70 AD. Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin 
and his face shone like that of an angel. We read in Acts chapter 6 and verse 15, All that sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as if it had been the face of an angel. Now, what were the accusations brought against Stephen? First of all, that he blasphemed Moses and God, that he continually spoke blasphemous words against the temple, the holy place, and the law, and also that he said that Jesus would destroy Jerusalem and the temple and would change the customs which Moses had given. Now, anybody that's anybody that has read the Bible and read the prophecies of Jesus as we see in Matthew 24 would be clear that that was out of context. That is not what Jesus said. The court of the Sanhedrin stated their case against Stephen with the high priest asking Stephen if these accusations were correct. Now we find Stephen's answer starting in Acts chapter 7. He starts his discourse by referring to the story of Abraham. God had told Abraham in verse 3 of Acts 7 to get out of his country and from his relatives and to come to a land that God would show him. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans and finally ended up in the land which the Jews were now calling their home. The issue was God had promised to give to Abraham for a possession and to his descendants after him the land in which God was going to take Abraham. The Jews had now taken ownership of that land, but Stephen went on to say that God gave Abraham no inheritance of that land at that time. No, not even enough to set his foot on. Stephen pointed out that although Abraham had no children at the time, God had promised the land to him and his descendants. It was given to Abraham by promise. Now, how can it be that God promises Abraham that he would inherit the land? And Stephen said that before his death, he had not even inherited enough land to place his feet on. How can a dead man inherit anything? There is only one way that Abraham could inherit the land, and that was through him being resurrected from the dead. We read the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 8, where God told Abraham that he would give to him and his descendants after him the land in which he was a stranger. Now notice that God tells him that he's a stranger, so he has not inherited that land yet. Yes, all the land of Canaan would be given to him and his descendants as an everlasting possession. Stephen continued that God had prophesied that Abraham's descendants would end up living in another land to the one that he was in at that time, that they would be oppressed by this heathen power for 400 years. The fact that Abraham's descendants were no longer in the same country promised to Abraham and his descendants for an inheritance actually proves the point that they had not yet received the promised inheritance. Looking at verse 7, there we read that the heathen nation to whom they would be in bondage would be judged by God, that God would then return them to the place where Abraham was when he had received the promise, where he had received the prophecy. So don't lose sight of this important detail of Stephen's sermon. God prophesies first, then later he fulfills the prophecy. Now we read in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, which tells us that surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And Abraham was a prophet. 
Stephen continued with his sermon regarding the history of Israel and spoke about God making the covenant of circumcision with Abraham. Now, please keep this covenant in mind because Stephen brings the spiritual significance of the sign of the circumcision to the fore in his closing remarks. Now, Abraham had Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered the twelve patriarchs. God had chosen Abraham and his descendants. Abraham's grandson was called Jacob, and when God had renewed the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob, He changed his name to Israel, and that is how the nation of Israel received their name. Now Israel, or Jacob, had 12 sons, and from their descendants came the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. Continuing on with Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, we read on from Acts chapter 7 and verse 9. He recounts that the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt. So persecution is not limited to the heathen and to non-believers only. We even see persecution of the faithful among God's people. We need to ask why. Was this merely a family squabble or was there more to this controversy? Genesis chapter 37 tells us that they hated Joseph because of the father's love for him. They also hated him because he told them his prophetic dreams. He had two prophetic dreams that God had given him, and when he shared him, they hated him even the more. Sometime after this, Jacob sent Joseph on an errand to find if everything was okay with his sons who were tending his flocks some distance away. We read in Genesis chapter 37 from verse 18 to 20. Now when they saw Joseph afar off, even before he came near them, They conspired against him to kill him. Now, this is his brothers conspiring against him and wanting to kill him. They said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall save some wild beast and devour him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. God, through Reuben, works to spare his life, but Joseph ends up being sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites, who end up selling him as a slave in Egypt. Now, Stephen points out something very fascinating here. Joseph is rejected by his brothers, but he is chosen by God. This rejection by people, but chosen by God, is a reoccurring theme in Stephen's discourse, as you will see as we continue on. Now, continuing on from Acts 7, from verse 9, This tells us that although Joseph was rejected by his brothers, God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him, that is Pharaoh, made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Because of the foresight given by God to Joseph, the nation of Egypt under Joseph's leadership prepared for the seven-year famine that was lying ahead. And in search of food, Joseph's prophetic dream actually comes true when his brothers come to Egypt in pursuit of food because they had run out of food in Canaan and they end up bowing down before the governor of Egypt, not knowing that the governor was Joseph, their brother. Now, God had prophesied what would happen between Joseph and his brothers and this prophecy was fulfilled just as God had shown in the prophetic dream. 
But when Joseph had shared his prophetic dream with his brothers, they became envious and hated him all the more. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, yet he was chosen by God. Now God had given another prophecy to Abraham that his descendants would be persecuted in Egypt. Now for a while Israel flourished in Egypt when another king arose who did not have any regard for Joseph or his legacy. We are told by Stephen in Acts chapter 7 verse 19 that this Pharaoh dealt treacherously with God's people and oppressed their forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Here Stephen introduces the fact that persecution was no longer an issue among the Israelites. The brothers had repented of their evil deed and they had been reconciled to Joseph. Persecution now arose from outside of the faith and they were persecuted by an heathen nation. See, Satan wants to stir up strife amongst the brethren. He wants us to have conflict from within. But when repentance gets accepted as a gift from God and people are reconciled to God and they accept the ministry of reconciliation, Satan, who is no able longer to work within the church, now steps outside of the church and works on the hearts and minds of those people outside to bring persecution. Now, during this time of persecution, Moses was born, and in God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And when Moses was 40 years old, he went to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And reading Acts chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, it says, And seeing one of them being beaten by an Egyptian, he defended and avenged him and killed the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, did Moses believe the 400-year prophecy given to Abraham that God would actually deliver them after they are oppressed in that heathen nation? It is clear that he did. And knowing that the 400 years were almost up, he believed that God was going to accomplish Israel's deliverance from persecution and slavery by his hand. Stephen goes on to say that the very next day, Moses broke up a fight between two Israelites and tried to reconcile them. Now the one who had done wrong pushed Moses away and said to him, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? After realizing that his crime was known publicly, Moses fled and lived in Midian for 40 years. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush and said, I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Stephen then makes this statement in Acts chapter 7 verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, that is the children of Israel, or some of them rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. Stephen again uses the history of Israel to prove that just as Joseph was rejected by his own and chosen by God, so also Moses was rejected by his own and chosen to save his people. Rejected by man, 
but chosen by God. Stephen introduces another prophecy spoken by Moses, this time regarding the coming Messiah. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, we read, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Stephen recounts the history of Israel in the wilderness, how the angel spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and also to Israel. Stephen then reminds them in verse 37 that Israel would not obey. They rejected Moses in in heart and they rejected God and they turned back to Egypt. Their rejection went so far as to make an idol, sacrifice it to it and thereby turn their backs on God. Stephen recounts the history of the tabernacle that God appointed according to the pattern shown to Moses while on Mount Sinai. They ended up bringing that tabernacle to the promised land and many years later it was replaced when Solomon built the temple. Now keep in mind that they had accused Stephen of speaking against Moses and against the law and against the temple. Stephen quotes from the Old Testament prophet as written down in Isaiah chapter 66 in the first few verses where God speaks and says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now, when Stephen reached this point, he abruptly stops the flow of his discourse and starts rebuking the Sanhedrin for their rebellion and unbelief. Let's read it from Acts chapter 7 and from verse 51 onwards, and then we will consider why there is this sudden change in tone and also material of his sermon. And we read, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resisted the Holy Spirit as your father did, so you do. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, to whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. You have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. In this wonderful book called The Acts of the Apostles, on page 100, we read that there was a tumult amongst the people when Stephen connected Christ with the prophecies and spoke as he did of the temple. The priest, pretending to be horror-stricken, rent his robe. Now the law of Moses forbade any such action by the high priest. And we read in Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 10, He who is a high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. What the high priest and the others that were with him should have done was as follows, and take the advice found in Joel chapter 2 verse 13, where God says to them through the prophet, So rent your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. To Stephen, this act, that is the act of the high priest tearing his robe, was a signal that his voice would soon be silenced forever. He saw the resistance that met his words and knew that he was giving his last testimony. Although in the midst of his sermon, he abruptly concluded it. 
suddenly breaking away from the train of history that he was following and turning upon his inferior judges, he cried, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, we just read there in Joel that they were to rent their hearts and not their garments. So here we can see the circumcision represents the taking away of the flesh, the denial of the flesh, the death of self, and not relying on your own works to save you. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 that we are by nature the children of wrath, as demonstrated by these religious leaders. Only God can remove what we are by nature. Only He can take the heart of stone out of our flesh and give us a new heart, a circumcised heart, a heart that has been rent from all that defilement and all that wrath. But the Sanhedrin and its leaders would not. They had removed themselves so far from God that in fighting against God and His people and His messenger, they thought they were doing God's service. Jesus had predicted that this would happen. He said in John chapter 16, verse 2 and 3, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he is offering God's service. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. When the Sanhedrin heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man called Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. He, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Thank you for joining me today on Souls Under the Altar. God be with you. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on Souls Under the Altar. If you'd like more information about today's program or if you have any questions, please contact 3ABN Australia Radio by phoning 0249733456 or you can send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also contact us on our 3ABN Australia Radio Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you.